Thanks very much, Ruth. Well, good evening again, everybody. Good that you keep coming back for some more of the book of Revelation. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and uh, it's associated with three images. So the slides are going to appear on uh, my side there. There we go. And I want you to tell me, is it a foghorn, is it a doormat, or is it a whip that you associate with the following people, okay? And you're going to show me with your hands up in the air, okay? School teacher, is it, any hands for the whip, is it the doormat? One teacher raises her hand. Is it the foghorn? People, you have to pick one of the three. There is no fourth. Okay, excellent. Okay, some of you, yeah? You have to have a really good shouting voice to be a teacher. That's controversial to say that, actually. A parent. Especially if you're a kid here this evening. Is it the foghorn for a parent? Some of it. <laughs> Some of you, that's your life. Is it a doormat? You can walk all over them. No, but oh, <laughs> only a parent would think that. <laughs> Is it the whip? Yeah, I think that's the winner. Okay. Now, a Christian. A Christian. You associate that with the whip? With the doormat? Huh. With the foghorn. Uh, some of us here subscribing to the open air preaching? Hey, it's very good. Now, even though I, I do think that most of us would associate a Christian with the doormat, they turn the other cheek, they take it in the chin, why would anyone want to harm a Christian? Especially in the ancient world where they have zero power behind them. And yet, in Revelation chapter 6, that's what we find. People wanting to hurt or having hurt, having killed Christians that are now before the throne of God, crying out to him. What's potentially so offensive about being a Christian? Now, I think it's very interesting that different books I've read pointed this fact out that we've gone in a trajectory, culturally, that landed us in a very unusual place here in the West. We used to be very acceptable. It was an acceptable thing to be a Christian. And then it went from being acceptable to being perhaps harmless or ignorant. It's sort of, well, you're a bit foolish because you believe in fairy tales and Santa or just the same. And it's okay for you. You can just be in the corner there and believe that. It's fine. Don't force it on me. It's okay. And now we're in a new phase that these books are saying, and I believe it. That's been my experience in this culture. It's dangerous for you to be a Christian. It's dangerous to us and our children because of what you believe. It's going to harm us and our children. Back in the day, it used to be that Christians were called atheists in a syncretistic Roman Empire that preserved unity by saying, we conquered you, you believe whatever gods you want, we'll add it to the pantheon, and everyone is happy. And the Christians come along and say, actually, only our God is the true one. That's offensive. All of a sudden, Christians are called atheists because they don't believe in the gods. 
and that's not good. For us today, just as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, our beliefs, when they are held faithfully, are a reminder of the truths that, as Paul says in Romans 1, people are suppressing. And therefore, that irritates or threatens or annoys people who want God out of their worldview. And so as we come again to the book of Revelation and we see that there are martyrs in our picture tonight, in our scenes, we need to remind ourselves, actually, this book is still written to a church that was in trouble, that was persecuted and about to get it worse, and it's still bringing hope to them by showing them what's going on in heaven right now. That's what people want to know when they're suffering. Is there hope beyond this? Yes, there is. Because for us today, we recognize that there are lots of things in the world that just like our ancient brothers and sisters, they couldn't change about the Roman Empire. So now there are things that we are not very kind of friendly to Christians and we, we know we can't change them. And we know that certain things are going to get worse. So we need that same boost, that same hope for living out what's in verse 9, the word of God and maintaining the testimony of obedience before him. So I'm going to tell you that we're called to be just as the martyrs, under the altar. We're called to be before the throne in verse 10. And we are called to be the people who endure, but with certainty, in verse 11. Read verse 9 with me, as we begin with under the altar. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. It was Winston Churchill who said that he had nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. What would it take for you to offer your blood? What would it take for you to offer your life? What cause? Maybe for your family? For a sibling? For a parent? For a promotion? For money? For a spouse? What would it take for you to sacrifice your reputation, put it in the line, risk everything, as these people in verse 9? did and still do around the world i ask this because when this seal is broken and opened we meet people who patiently endured suffering for their faith until they were finally killed because they wanted to risk everything so that a they could continue to know and enjoy god and b so that other people could do the same they felt you could risk everything and why did they suffer look at verse 9 it was because of the word of God. The word that, you remember chapter one in our first sermon? They probably didn't even get to read properly, but it was read aloud in their meetings and they were blessed by obeying it. That word, the word that told them that the Caesar that they knew wasn't really the emperor, that Jesus was, and they should live like it. The word that they suffered for was the word that said, don't sacrifice to other gods and don't eat anything sacrificed to other gods and therefore exclude yourself from certain jobs, maybe even from certain family members that will disown you. It was that word that they suffered for. But also it was the word that told them there is a greater treasure and security in the love of Christ than they ever could find anywhere else. And again, in verse 9 still, this wasn't just a word that they kind of 
you know, believed in, as, a, as in an intellectual tick box exercise. I agree with it. It was a word that led them to live it out, to maintain a good testimony. I don't know if you know this, but while I was listening to a famous scholar called Don Carson, he was just tracing that word through, martyr, how you have this word in the Greek, martyreo, that just means to witness, to be a witness to, to testify to. And all of a sudden, because more and more Christians that want to testify end up dying, the two conflate, the two go together. For you to become a witness means you're probably going to be killed. Until today, when it takes a more lighthearted sense, which is, oh, so-and-so is such a martyr, you know. But before then, it was the word that led the church father Athanasius to write. Isn't it a slight indication of the Savior's victory over death when boys and young girls who are in Christ look beyond this present life and train themselves to die? Back then, boys and girls, for you to be a Christian, you would be risking your life. And we have such flavors of that sacrifice in this passage. Look at it with me. How are they described, these martyrs? They are slain. They're near the altar, the place where sacrifice happens. In verse 10, their blood is spilled. Altar, sacrifice, blood. In verse 11, they're given white robes. Again, Old Testament sacrificial language because when you're impure or not in a good state before God, you've sinned, you offer a sacrifice and you're purified. Here now, they are rewarded with the victory and purity of their white robes that Jesus promised to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 because he has been faithful on their behalf. So these are faithful followers of Jesus that amazingly, they're not afraid of what other people are going to think of their Christianity, of their love for Jesus. They're not afraid of what people are going to do to them. And that makes me already want to ask as a Christian, do I treasure Jesus just as much as to know I should be willing to give up anything? I mean, are we willing to give up anything when we think, well, if I say something to this person, I'm going to sound like a nutter, and therefore I'm going to keep quiet. Or if I say something, I might risk losing the friendship. I might risk being that one person in the friendship circle that's just excluded, particularly at school. I might risk the job or my prospects. Young people particularly, I wonder, do you treasure Jesus so much that you're willing to endure the stereotypes that are just thrown at you at school, in your RE lessons, in good time, at university perhaps? And I ask this because the lifeblood of sacrifices in the Old Testament now becomes the lifeblood of Christians poured out on the altar as their love for Jesus. And, you know, you, you can go back to our series in Leviticus, and before you start thinking, this blood spilled here is like a burnt offering or a sin offering, no, no, no. It's like a fellowship offering, a thanksgiving offering, that because Jesus died for me, I am willing to, in order to know him better, suffer for him, not be ashamed of him. Isn't it almost as if they're looking at Jesus and going, Jesus is like this. He suffered as a man, and now he's glorified. I'm his follower, so I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be glorified, just as he is. 
And so we begin to think, if we're talking about martyrs, what are the consequences of living in a world that doesn't agree with God being at the center? I have found, thinking about this, that this is the same as asking the question, what does it mean to be a foreigner? I'm an expert on this one. And so when we think about what it means to be a foreigner now, I love graphic novels, um, and just to clarify, graphic doesn't mean sexual. Some of you seem to think that. I don't know why. Um, but graphic novel, it just, it's just like a novel, but in pictures, okay? And um, this particular one called The Roles We Play by this uh, second-generation Afghani immigrant uh, lady brilliantly portrays her experience of coming into this country and how people looked at her, at how she dressed, at her hijab, at uh, how she portrayed herself, the community, the neighborhood she lived in, and they thought they knew everything there was to know about her, how she would respond to situations, what she actually believed. They just assumed by looking at her because she was a foreigner. In the same way, people misunderstand our love for the Word of God because of the God of the Word, and when that happens, and they think they know what we believe. They think they know what we're about. Best case scenario, they can look down on us. Ah, you believe this. Mm. Worst case scenario, they may persecute us, as they do in many countries around the world. But when that happens, Paul reminds us in Philippians 3.20, that happens because this world, this country, is not your real home. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. It feels like this world is in our home, doesn't it? When you're trying to live for Jesus and know him, why else, if this world is in our home, would so many different countries around the world, that's the Open Doors watch list, persecute Christians? Christians who cannot fight back, Christians who won't fight back. In some countries, there are still Christians who are oppressed simply because they pledge allegiance to a greater king. We pray for them. We bring them before God, and we secretly are grateful. That's not us in the UK. In our country, there are other things that make us feel like a foreigner who belongs somewhere else. If you've ever lived abroad, how many of you have lived abroad, by the way, just out of interest? Okay, that's, that's a, still a fairly small number. But when you do live abroad, you end up asking yourself lots of questions about how you feel other than everyone. Questions like, why do they eat like this, right? In Brazil, pizza, knife and fork, but why? Because it's hygienic. Um, why is their language so hard? For who can tell the difference between coco and coco? Coco and coco. One means coconut, the other means poo. Why do I keep being misunderstood like that time I said I worked in this building in nothing but socks? All of these conflicts that make you feel like the foreigner that you are, in my case, that make you feel like this world isn't your home, they are harder and more complex when it comes to Christians. They would have been asked in the first century, how dare you defy the government like this? How dare you claim that there is only one God? And you might think, it's not like that today, but pick a good friend, or even a bad one, if you really want to see it happen, kick off, and mention any of these subjects. Late-term abortion, 
euthanasia. For the purpose of sex. And you will see sometimes even a split personality. But why? Why would that lead someone? Partly, I think, it seems to be, as I said at the beginning, Christianity is viewed now as dangerous. By, by you, having you explain to me what the Bible says about any of these things, you are making me a repressed, potentially joyless, potentially suicidal person. And that shouldn't be allowed. So if these people are coming into my school, no, we can't have that. I've once had someone in an assembly complain against the Samaritans, um, Operation Christmas Child, because they mentioned God. I'm like, that's bonkers. Why would someone want to hurt a Christian? Jesus says this in John chapter 15. And I love that when Peter was praying, he quoted this. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. He says in John 15, 23, whoever hates me hates my father as well. So even though all that kind of sounds negative, it just puts in perspective why there would be such a verse as verse 9 in our Bibles, because some people are threatened by what God demands from them. And yet, we got to keep on the other flip side of the coin here, that Jesus says in the parable of the seeds, that's not everyone. Some people would hear, they would see these judgments, and they would go, man, I really do need this God. I want to trust Him. I want to see what He is like. That's what happened to me when I was 15. And I remember having written it in this battered old book, when I had to explain to someone else, why just put yourself in the way of other people who are going to mock you and laugh at you? No one in your family believes like you do. Why would you do that? And I just remembered again that there's only one big reason why you might even potentially suffer or face difficulty and not let go of the hand of God. And that's if you think he is so much better, more gracious, more loving, more joyful than anything else that you've met. That's what I found when I was seeking attention, affection, and approval as a young man, when I was seeking it in alcohol as we drank in secret at a friend's house, when I was seeking it uh, by smoking marijuana because one of my friends sold it, and I was just left empty-handed every step of the way until I spoke to the God who made me. And I felt his presence, and I felt he was with me. And every page of the Bible I read, the Holy Spirit authenticated it in my heart and said, believe that, that's true. How can I go back to the worried, anxious, insecure, eternally insecure person that I was? And so I'd rather be with him now and forever, whatever the cost, so help me the three-in-one God. So that's the martyrs of the fifth seal, which is a cool name for an order. Um, under the altar, willing to die. But more quickly, we're also called to be under the altar, but before the throne. Verse 10, read it again with me. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Show of hands here. 
You're at the restaurant. You ordered something. It came back wrong. Show of hands. Do you send it back? Do you tell them? Anyone? That's like, oh, that's more than I expected for a British audience. Fantastic. Now, you were at the hairdresser, and they get it wrong. Anybody? Far fewer people. That's really interesting, isn't it? Now, I mean, obviously, partly that might be because if they've taken too much, what are they going to do? Right? Implants? I don't think so. Although that's possible, but very expensive. Now, my wife, Megan, is one that would never complain. I think I've slowly converted her. Because when I get it sorted, and I complain, and I send it kindly, Christianly, I get free stuff. I ordered something, they come back and said, I'm so sorry, that's not on the menu. I said, oh, I was really hoping to have that. As a matter of fact, that's why I came to the restaurant this evening. Is there anything we can do about this? Because I know that, I mean, at least they can give me 10% off the bill. It works. And they're never going to watch this sermon, so they're not going to see it coming. But I've found, whenever I talk with people, it's all about how they see the character of the waitress, the waiter, the manager. Is it going to be received? Can I really say this? Here we have a God whose character so longs for justice that we know asking him to do what is just is just asking him to be himself. Or in other words, it's just asking him, let your kingdom come. These martyrs have direct access to God. They're not afraid to speak to him in a way that maybe you and I would go, who are you to say how long, O Lord? You can't do that. God is God. And yet he allows them to pull him up on his promise that he made that he will judge. They have direct, direct access to God. And on top of that, they have the confidence to complain. It sounds like complaining. I don't think it really is complaining, but they have the confidence to bring up a promise of God would you feel confident coming to any of the above to complain? I mean, if I said, kids, a scale from 0 to 10 here, how confident would you be when you bring a complaint to your parents? I mean, just imagine. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. What about your teacher at school? What about a best friend? What about a spouse? What about those that you have that are above you in your workplace? Would you feel confident being able to bring something to them and know that they have the character to fulfill it? Here is a God who doesn't just offer eternal, blissful, joyful access to himself, but it's so intimate, you can ask, how long, O oh Lord, and you're not kicked out of heaven? That's true of you tonight when you're facing justice, when you face suffering, and all you want to say to God is, how long? Well, clearly, he wouldn't hate you for it. He would allow you to speak to him. And I know that you might be sitting there and thinking, I was once in an RE lesson where someone thought it was a very contradictory thing for me to say, I'm a Christian, I believe in capital punishment, which I do. You can ask me about that later on. Um, and you believe in turning the other cheek? And I'm like, I think the two go together. Let's talk about that. 
And equally, you might be thinking, turn the other cheek, but now you're asking God to avenge you? I don't think that's contradictory because they are asking the only being in the universe who is actually going to do what's just and right and who has all the facts all the time to do what is just. They're just asking God to be God. And so when they say how long, what does that tell you and I? At least two things. One, that you know, it's okay to be outraged by injustice and to pray for God to do what is just. I don't think that the martyrs would have been sad if those who killed them repented and became part of God's family. They would have been overjoyed, no doubt. But they still long to see God do what is just. And that means that the second thing is they understand there can't be any rescue without judgment. I know that hell and eternal separation from God I mean, that's a really hard teaching, and we're going to have to cover it when we come to the later chapters of Revelation. But I think that most of us who have a problem with hell find that when we dig a little bit more deeply, we find we have a problem with the concept of justice itself, if we have a problem with hell and eternal separation from God. Because if you believe that there's such a thing as crime and punishment, or depending on your jurisprudence, consequence at least, then it would be really weird to meet the being that's the most just in the universe and not understand that in order for him to rescue, he must punish those who are not in his rescue. So all of our desire for justice can be found properly fulfilled here. When we face injustice and we are frustrated by the way the world is, we look up and we see there is a just God who is going to right every wrong. There is a just God who has poured his wrath on Jesus so that he could also show us the fulfillment of our desire for justice in the mercy on Jesus. So God does one of two things in his judgment. Either he says, I see you have believed in Jesus. You are hidden in him. Come, faithful servant. Or if you are not hidden in Jesus over here, you deserve to be judged and to be away from him. What will you choose? And so we finish thinking about how you can be before the throne. You can have access to God. He, in, he understands your cry at injustice. He listens. He promises to right every wrong. But lastly, you are called as a Christian to endure with certainty. Let's read verse 11 again. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So this scene with the martyrs now turns into a bit of a waiting room where they have to wait patiently until God says, my plan has reached the point where I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. Now, I didn't know how to kind of connect that idea with you today, so I had to call Brazil. I called my brother because I was thinking, you know what, when it comes to waiting, I really do think we're experts. We are trained at every step in the Brazilian life in order to wait. Because even when you go to the doctor and you have an appointment booked, thou shalt wait 
at least half an hour because an appointment means nothing. And so I'm going to give you the strategy for successful waiting. You ready? If you're taking some notes, if you are particularly going to deal with a civil servant in Brazil, you need to develop slowly the ability to butter them up, to massage the ego, okay? I'm not saying this is true of this country. If you're a civil servant here this evening, please don't feel judged. You are loved and accepted. But you need to be able to say, is it Friday? Well, then tell them, oh, man, Friday must be shattered. Oh, you don't get paid enough, do you? Man, look at this queue. How are you ever going to get through? Butter them up, butter them up. You do a great job. Fantastic. Whatever you do, don't push them. You will be at the end of the queue, I guarantee you, in Brazil. If you need a setup to help you wait, phone charged up, internet access. I called my brother and I asked, is this true? And I said, a, a book worth reading? He said, nah, not in Brazil not a book worth reading. What you take instead is the willingness to turn to the person next to you and moan about the civil servant, but not Britishly, loudly, so that they can hear. And you bring snacks because you know you're gonna be there for at least an hour. These are the things that help me wait. I wonder, what is it here that help, what are the things that help the martyrs wait contentedly for their request to be listened to, for God's timing. Because I think whatever helps them wait is going to help you and I, when we are frustrated with God's timing, to wait as well. Keep staring at your Bible as I mention some of these things. How are they described? They are slain. They can wait because they've lived faithful lives by the power of God. That's not to be confused with living perfect lives, but they've lived lives that represent a pattern of obedience, of repentance, of love towards God. That's what they were rescued for. Sometimes you and I can't wait because we are not faithfully enjoying the obedient lives we were rescued for. We forget what God is calling us to do. They were slain, they wear white robes. They can wait because they have the right status with God. They relate to God as those who have been made innocent by the blood of Jesus. It says they can wait a little longer because they trust God's timing throughout their lives has always been perfect. Throughout Scripture, it has always been perfect. And I think that's one reason why, for you and for me, we want to tuck away in the corner of our minds, or if you're a person who journals, you want to journal that into a notebook, the times when God has been faithful, when prayers have been answered, because those will be reminders of why you can trust God's timing. But most of all, a little longer, because God's plan is bigger than you and me in this tiny little speck of the earth right now. God's plan is bigger than that. Do you see that? 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Like the martyrs, we can wait because we know God's doing something. I have family members that don't believe in Jesus. 
I pray that this time that God is waiting before he brings his kingdom on earth is a time where they will take that opportunity with both hands and say, I know Jesus now. Many of you are here in the same position with family members, children, parents, cousins, neighbors. And you pray this prayer with Peter, that God will bring every one of those that you love to repentance. So as we finish, what is it that helps Christians wait in the face of injustice? What helps them wait for God's kingdom to come in all its fullness? Well, I think number one, it's remembering why knowing God is worth dying for. Like I told you with my little testimony. That doesn't make sense to you unless you can answer the question, why is Jesus worth giving up everything for? If you can't answer that question, don't be a Christian. Ask other questions and find out more about Jesus. And when you discover the answer to that question, yes, be a Christian. In the meantime, for those of us who are loving God and have forgotten why it's worth dying for, are we cultivating a life of experiencing God in prayer, in worship, in fellowship, in home group? If we're not doing that, it's never, it's never going to make sense that you would suffer for Jesus. I pray that he will help me to do that too, because then with the apostles, I'll be able to say, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering for the name. So reason number one was remembering why knowing God is worth dying for, but lastly, remembering that God's plan will be better than your plan and my plan. We're frustrated until we stop and think again, do you know what, God's been really faithful. Some of you have been Christians for decades, and you tell me, and I'm encouraged by God's faithfulness in your life, you tell me of times when you've prayed and God has answered, you tell me of difficult times when you were in the thick of suffering and God was there with you. That helps me as a Christian to go, all right, it's hard to wait now. It's hard to hear a no. It's hard to hear this isn't happening, but God is with me. And so my prayer for you and for me is that you would see the calling that you have of being a Christian under the altar. You willingly offer your life to God. You're not surprised that opposition is normal you'll see the calling to be before the throne, confident in God's justice. And you're able to endure what God ordains with certainty because you see here these martyrs, they finished the race. They can wait. They're in the presence of God. We live our lives with the same certainty. Let's pray together as we finish. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that it's really encouraging to see that there are these people in the heavens right now, that even though they were killed for their faith, they trust you, they know you, they're satisfied in your presence. And we pray that when it becomes difficult for us to obey you, when it burns and it hurts, can you please help us? Can you please help our children here this evening and young people to continue with you so strongly that they would be able to answer the question, why is it worth giving up friends, family, money, anything for Jesus? May they be able to answer that question. May all of us here this evening confidently because knowing you is better. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.